Let's turn in God's Word this evening to Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Let us hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Lord bless this reading of his word. Let us now pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this Lord's Day to gather in your house for worship. Thank you for this portion of your word that was read. Be with our pastor as he preaches on your word. May we pay attention and apply it to our lives. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, let us turn for our study this evening to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In particular, and you'll notice the reference to adoption there in verse 5, but it's set within the entire context of this beautiful portion of God's Word. As Pastor Bob has been going through this series, and he's come to the section of the Westminster Confession that has to do with the doctrine of salvation, one of the things that has been coming out, and it ought always to come out, is that Our salvation originates with the grace of God, and it culminates in the glory of God. And we have seen that of late with regard to the doctrine of justification, which is found in chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession. And just to summarize uh, the teaching of the Westminster Confession as a summary of biblical teaching, let me just quote from chapter 11, paragraph 3, brief sentence. Not for anything in us, our justification is only of free grace, 
that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. So then when we move on to this uh, historically seminal chapter, chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession, as you will see in the handout, the first confession of faith that we know of to have included a chapter on the doctrine of adoption, we are then moving from what we might call a legal picture of the gospel to one that is more familial, uh, to do with the family of God. There are legal elements in adoption, but the overall thrust and feel of this doctrine is that of family. John Calvin, who taught that justification is the main hinge upon which salvation turns, also when he came to die, said these words, that he had no other defense or refuge for salvation than God's gratuitous adoption on which alone my salvation depends. He was not pitting justification on the one hand against adoption on the other. But he is saying this marvelous truth that Martin Luther had brought back into vogue in the first generation of the Reformation, namely, we are justified in the sight of God by the grace that is free to us but costs the Lord Jesus his life, is also found in this doctrine of adoption. That adoption is by divine grace and not human merit. And adoption is as much by divine grace rather than human merit as is justification. Now, it's important to say at the outset that neither Paul nor Calvin, who on this subject is, to my mind, the best interpreter of the Apostle Paul, neither of them were theorizing. It's possible for us to come to these doctrinal studies and to think of these things as all a theory. But if John Calvin's quotation from the end of his days teaches us nothing else, it is that when he came to face death himself, he said, what is my refuge? What is my defense as I go out to meet the living God? It is that I have this adoption as the Son of God, a Son of God, which was free to me, but cost the Lord Jesus his life. And so let us think about these doctrines, not simply as filling our minds with doctrine. We can be doctrinaire, but the great value of doctrine is that as we apply the doctrine to ourselves, we may draw the comfort that they are intended to grant us. And so Paul writes here to the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And he is confirming to those who are already Christian from the Gentile world predominantly that their salvation relies upon the grace of God. And so he opens up this letter with a six-fold depiction of what the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 12 calls the grace of adoption or what the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 74, calls an act of God's free grace. Now, I'm going to run through these 
six depictions of the grace of adoption tonight, and to do so uh, in as timely a fashion as I can. First of all, the grace of adoption is heavenly, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, here Paul refers to God not as he is in himself. There is a hiddenness about God. We know that the three persons of the Godhead are co-equal in power and in glory. And yet each of us tonight has a finite mind. And so the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breaks down the Trinity, not so much as the Trinity is in himself, as the God that is one and yet three, but as God has revealed to us His saving grace. And so there is a distinction, and this is particularly important when uh, talking, for instance, to Jehovah Witnesses, between what we call the ontological trinity, God as He is in Himself, and the economic trinity, God as He has revealed Himself to be for our salvation. Now, when I first heard of this term, economic trinity, I thought, what has the trinity got to do with the economy? And my mind was boggled. But don't be afraid of the word economy. It actually comes from a Greek term, which we'll come to in verse 10, oikonomia. And it has the idea of household management. And so what Paul is given to us here in verse 3 knowing that he's writing to those who are in the Gentile world, dominated by the Romans, he's giving them a picture of God with which they would have been familiar because of the hierarchical structure of a Roman family. And amid the management of God's family, he tells us of adoption, first, that it is from the Father. Although eternally the father of the son was enjoying perfect love and satisfaction within the Godhead, the father was minded from all eternity to enlarge his family innumerably. He did so not as in Roman adoption to guarantee the lineage of the family, for you recall that the father never dies. And Neither did he need to adopt us because he needs an heir who's going to extend the family line because, of course, he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Rather, adoption is all of grace. Thus, this grace of adoption, which comes from the father, is not limited to males. In Roman adoption, if you want to extend the family line and you don't have an heir, well, then you adopt a male, not as a young baby, but as we'll see as one come of age. And so there are no legal limitations. And so I want to say to the sisters in Christ tonight that although the language that comes with adoption is that of sonship, it is very much inclusive of female believers. And then the second thing we notice about the managing of the family is that adoption is in the son. The father envisioned many becoming his sons by sharing in the sonship of the Son of God. Now, of course, we do not share the divine essence of the Son. He is the only begotten Son of God, uniquely so. Nor do we share his 
eternal acquaintance with the Father, for he was eternally the Son. We only become sons of God at a certain point in time. But we come in the Son, meaning in union with him to share a filial relationship to the Father. Filial meaning that belonging to a son or to a daughter. To this end, then, the Son selflessly humbles himself to become Jesus Christ, the anointed one who would save or redeem his people. There is no sense then from eternity past of the son having, if I may put it this way, his nose out of joint because he and the father have this particular relationship, this perfect relationship, this harmonious relationship with no trouble in it and then come along all these adopted siblings. No sense of that whatsoever. The third thing we notice about the managing of the family, adoption is of the spirit. When Paul writes here in verse 3, of our every spiritual blessing, he means our blessings were forged in the heavenly realm, out of our sight, before our time, but also that they are granted by the spirit. So in unity with the Father and the Son, the Spirit applies to us and confirms in us the Father's will to adopt us and the Son's work in preparation for that adoption. Now, of course, we cannot understand all this. John Calvin used to speak of the Bible as baby talk, God's endeavor to speak to us in a childlike way of things which we could not understand otherwise so that we can have some comprehension, some comprehension of this great grace that God has lavished upon his people from the heavenly realm. And so notice what Paul does in verse 3 here. He cannot understand, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he cannot understand everything that God has done for our salvation. But he blesses God. And that is the first thing we ought to do when we think of the grace of adoption. It is to bless God. <clears throat> but then secondly, notice from verse 4 that the grace of adoption is primary. Now, of course, if it is heavenly, predating us, then of course it is primary. The work of God, the grace of God, comes before our response to that grace. Notice then in verse 4 the two evidences that uh, Paul gives for this. The first half of verse 4, God's choice of us precedes our choice of God. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The verb Paul uses for choosing is that to gather out. And so if you want a picture of the doctrine of election, it is of God the Father in particular gathering out from the human race an innumerable company upon whom he bestows a particular love. And he gathers them out in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means in some astonishing way that from eternity past, we're at the borders of language. From eternity past, in the Father's mind, is not only Christ the Son and the Spirit, of course, but also those whom He intends 
to adopt. The Father forever had us and the Son together in his mind and implies thereby that there is no coming to him nor any entrance into the household of God without coming through Jesus Christ. But this all happened, says verse 4, before the foundation of the world. What's significant about that, especially in our day where so much human autonomy is claimed? Well, we were chosen by the Father in Christ to enter not only into access to the Father, but into the family of God before we ever had any power of choice. That is a marvelous thing. Parental choice, then, is seen as critical in both ancient adoption, but also adoptions today. If you want to adopt a child, what do you do? It is the parent who makes the choice, the would-be parent who makes the choice, not the child. And so it is in the grace of adoption in the gospel. It is God the Father who makes the choice, and we make the response. Don't know if your mind goes back to the uh, funeral of Ronald Reagan a number of years ago. Was it 2004? And his son, Michael Reagan, gets up to speak. And he says something very powerful. He makes a few comments. And then he just says, I was the one he chose. Of himself, Michael Reagan had no ability to choose to be a son of Ronald and Nancy Reagan, and yet he was the one they chose. And so God's choice of us precedes our choice of God. But secondly, in verse 4, God's purpose in adopting us precedes our positioning when we are adopted. So common to human adoption, there are factors inclining choice. So you may hear a, a couple speak and they say, well, we're looking to adopt this gender or that gender. They may be looking for a certain ethnicity. They may be looking certainly for a healthy child. They may be looking for a child with certain looks. And of course, in the ancient world in which Paul is writing, where uh, a man is concerned that he's going to die without an heir, he's going to be looking and saying, is this adopted son going to be healthy enough to carry on my family line after I'm gone? Not so here. Notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Well, that tells us then that when God sees us from eternity past, and again we're at the borders of language, He doesn't see us first and foremost as holy and blameless before Him. But He sees us as unholy and full of blame, and yet He determines to adopt us. The grace then is unconditional. Not only did we have no power of choice to choose the Father before He chose us, neither did we in ourselves have the desire to choose the Father prior to His working us, whereby His desire becomes our desire. The grace of adoption then is unconditional. Listen to the hymn of Josiah Conda from 1836. Lord, tis not that I did choose you, that I know could never be, for this heart would still refuse you, had not your grace chosen me. Thirdly, the grace of adoption is costly. 
verse 5 and 7 to 8. Clearly, the cause of our adoption lies in God and not in us. In the Father's self-sacrificing love, the word that Paul uses is agape. He predestined us to adoption. In love, he predestined or pre-horizoned, that's the literal meaning of the verb, he pre-horizoned us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then as we move from verse 5 and uh, into verse 7 and 8, we find then uh, three principles to note about this adoption. First of all, the price of adoption, verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Well, Paul's Gentile readers knew of Roman adoption. For a son to be transferred from one legal fatherhood to another. The original father, which was called in Latin the paterfamilias, the father of the family, and it's strange to us, but this is what happened and helps to explain what Paul is saying here, sold his son into slavery. In other words, he released his son from his potestas, his authority, his power, and he put the son in slavery. Then the new father would come along, purchase the son from slavery, And if you want uh, some insight into what Paul is saying here, turn over to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul depicts what these Ephesians were like before the grace of adoption, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice what he's saying. We were previously in another family, and of course he's speaking especially of those who in the Gentile world who didn't have the background of God's dealings with Israel. And he says, you're in another household altogether. We might call it the household of the living dead. They were alive, just like I am, moving around. But they were dead in trespasses and sins. They didn't have a heavenly father. Their father, in inverted commas, was the prince of the power of the air. And he was dominating them. He was cajoling them. He was ensuring that they were the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath. And what happened? Well, they lived not after the will of God. They lived for the passions of the flesh. And what happened? Well, they were enslaved. They were in bondage until Jesus Christ came along. And he paid the price of their adoption. You know, one of the things I've learned since coming to America is that adoptions are highly expensive. Tens of thousands of dollars. And rightly do we say, if an abortion cost one an adoption cost, we'd be in a far better situation. But you know, there's no adoption so costly as our adoption. What is the price? It is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the second principle, the second half of verse 7. The purchase of adoption. Christ's shed blood obtains certain things. First of all, our cleansing. The forgivenesses of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. But with that forgiveness then comes a liberation from the passions of the flesh 
which signified our enslavement. And once then Christ has paid the purchase price by his own blood, and he has bought us out from the situation, the condition of enslavement, what happens? Well, the adoption takes place. The Greek word for adoption means the placing of a son. And so it is as if God the Father, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, takes hold of this man or this woman who have been released from the authority of the prince of the power of the air by the power of God, mind you. And although they are found in slavery, he takes hold of this person from the household of the living dead and he places them in the household of the living lively. Both physically alive, but spiritually alive. That's adoption. The placing from one family into another family. From under the prince of the power of the air unto the authority of our loving heavenly father. If you want a picture of this, I don't know how many of you have seen the 1959 film Ben-Hur. If you want a graphic illustration of what we're talking about here, you have the admiral, Quintus Arius, and he adopts his slave, Judah Ben-Hur. And when they first meet, Judah Ben-Hur is enslaved on the galley ship. But by the time he is adopted, he is standing there in the white robe. And Quintus Arius says, the formalities of adoption have now been completed. Young Arius is now the legal bearer of my name and the heir to my property. This ring of my ancestors would have gone to my son who had died. So now it is yours. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done through redeeming us from enslavement. The third principle then with regard to the cost of the grace of adoption is the pleasure of adoption. Verse 8. You're going to picture the, the man who's now out of slavery and he's come into the new paterfamilias and his family under his potestas, his authority. And oh, the difference between the household of the living dead and the household of the living lively. Here's the prince of the power of the air. Son, you're going to be involved in the passions of the flesh and you're going to bear the cost of all that that entails. And then he comes into the household of the living lively and says, where's the prince of the power of the air? No, I have this loving heavenly father. And he says, listen, I'm going to lavish on you the grace of God. I'm going to lavish on you the grace of God. But here's the interesting thing. The father never spoils his sons or his daughters. Listen to what Paul writes here, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The adoptive act is once for all, but now opens up the adoptive state of sonship, and our new paterfamilias loves us to such a degree just short of spoiling us in all wisdom and insight. What is his great aim for these adopted sons? It is, of course, that now we be holy set apart as unto God, set apart as unto the household of the living lively and blameless before him. It's a wonderful picture of redemption. We are to witness to the grace of God and we are to be a tribute to him. Sonship then is the sphere in which our sanctification takes place. 
we obey our Father, not because we have to, but because we get to. And therein, we copy our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has lived this life before us. Yes, he kept the law. Galatians 4, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us. And yet, he obeyed his father in the context of love and joy and pleasure. Fourthly then, the grace of adoption is revelatory. It reveals certain things, verses 9 through 11. In God's household, there are no dark secrets. Oh, there are things hidden from our view, but there are no dark secrets. There has never been an adopted son or daughter of God who has come into the family of God and has said, oh, if only I knew this about God before being adopted, I would have dragged my heels. I would have wanted to have stayed in the household of the living dead. No, when we come from one household into the other, the marvelous thing is this, that we find out that there's no disappointment in this father. There's no disappointment in this older brother. No, rather, once we become members of the household of God, not divine, not eternal, but nevertheless sharing the same filial status as the older brother, we get access into the secrets of the family. This is what Paul is saying here in verses 9 to 11. And so we have revealed to us the will of God's mind, verses 9 to 10. The Father makes known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan. Now, that's the word oikonomia, as a household management for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things upon earth. You see, this is why we need to be so humble, because if you are outside of the family of God tonight, there are things you cannot understand. But if we are in the family of God, the household of the living lively, then there are things that God has revealed to us. He grants us not only the status of son, but the spirit of being a son. And therefore, we have some access to the mind of God, speaking through the word. And this is what God says to us. I have a grand future for you. You are going to participate in the uniting of all things in heaven and on earth. Now notice the way in which he puts it. His sons are let literally into God's household management. And there we remember, by a comparison of Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of the time, Christ came the first time. But now we get to understand that in the fullness of the time, Christ is going to return. And we accept that not simply as some proposition, but we have sure confidence that he's going to come again, our elder brother. But there is a slight difference between the phrase in Galatians 4.4, the fullness of the time, and Ephesians 1.10 here, the fullness of the time. Galatians 4, Paul uses the term chronos. In other words, Christ came at the exact time. You can think of the Roman peace, the Roman roads being built. You can think of all the things 
which made the coming of Christ at that particular point essential. But now when he thinks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, he uses a different word for time. He talks about the fullness of the kairos, the fitting time. In other words, he is going to come at the time that fits best the plan of God. And when is that time? Well, that time is when all the believing Jews have been gathered in from out of the race and all the Gentiles have been gathered in out of the race. The full complement gathered in, the household complete. And then the Father will unite all things in Christ, chiefly his household. The partition is already broken down between believing Jews and believing Gentiles, Ephesians 2, 14 to 15. But then, on that day, and oh, how much cheer this gives those of us who already have family members in the unseen realm. The Father will unite all the adopted in heaven and all the adopted on earth. What a grand reunion. So the will of God's mind is revealed. But then secondly, the will of God's inheritance is revealed, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance and been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The Father plans not only the unity of His church, but the unity of creation. There is currently a discord between heaven and earth. This is what we say, isn't it, when we repeat the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why do we pray that? Because currently God's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven. But on that great day, when all things united in heaven and on earth, there will be a harmony in the execution of God's will by God's people. It will be the renewal of the cosmos and the relocation of heaven to earth. The new earth will be our inheritance. This is an astonishing revelation. And although our Father never dies, Paul says in verse 11 here, we have already obtained an inheritance. We have a taste of of this inheritance in our own souls already. And so that brings us on fifthly then to the grace of adoption. The grace of adoption is security, verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We already possess the inheritance, but we are yet to see it, let alone in its fullness. So how then can we know, one, that we already possess the inheritance, and two, that we will live to see the fullness of that inheritance when Jesus Christ returns in power and glory? Well, two reasons. First of all, verse 13, the adopted have a seal. The Father sent the Son to redeem us, but He also sent the Spirit to seal our adoption. And so when we compare then what's going on here in verses 13 and 14 with the other texts like Galatians 4 and Romans 8, what do we find? We find that when we are adopted, placed from one household into the other household, Something happens 
which never happens in a human adoption. We get the spirit of the adopter. And how can we know that we got the spirit of the adopter? Well, because we are enabled by the spirit to cry out, says Paul, not to whimper, to cry out. What do we cry out? Abba, Father, the Spirit puts the words Abba, Father on our lips, so suddenly we are praying to God, not as some estranged being, God out there. Abba, Father, as Luther says, Abba, Lieber Vater, Abba, dear Father. We have then the spirits indwelling our own spirits, witnessing to our spirits that we are the children of God. And having then possession of the Holy Spirit, we have this assurance that we have already obtained the inheritance as it pertains to our souls, but are yet to receive the fullness of the inheritance as it pertains to our bodies. And so secondly, the adopted have a guarantee or a down payment. You see, John Calvin makes a very valuable point. As much as we might sense the ministry of the Holy Spirit now, we do but sense a few droplets of the Spirit. But he says there's coming a day when we shall know the full harvest of the Spirit. And that is the point at which we shall experience not only in our souls, but in our bodies at the resurrection, the fullness of the inheritance as we are let loose on the new earth to come. We shall return to that next Sunday evening. Divine adoption then grants us what human adoption never can, the spirit of the adopter and the cosmos as our inheritance. We end tonight then with the grace of adoption as our doxology. You may have noticed in passing that we omitted verse 6 and we omitted verse 12. And it's fitting then that we end on this note because what is so true, the Apostle Paul, as he's unpacking this teaching and how our adoption goes back to the annals of eternity past, he keeps coming back to this issue of praise and glory, praise and glory, praise and glory. And so notice verse 6, our response is twofold. First of all, verse 6, the adopted praise God for His grace. You see, if you, if you read the, uh, the popular treatments of adoption, I don't want to knock them too hard because we're thankful that anybody has written on this subject after several centuries of neglect in it. But I have to say that the popular treatments of adoption are not very reliable. They typically have a picture on the front of a father with a young child. Well, that's not the picture that Paul has in mind. And more and more they have talked in the orphan care movement of us being orphans and then adopted. But that's not in Paul's mind either. We've already explained tonight that Paul is speaking about us having been enslaved in the household of the living dead, being placed in the household of the living lively. So slavery is the backdrop of our adoption. And the reason for pointing that out is, of course, if we believe that by nature we are orphans, that we are living as if God doesn't exist in the universe, or at least that he doesn't exist as our father. Well, what is your emotional response to an orphan? Well, you have great pity towards an orphan. 
They can't help being an orphan. That's just the deck of cards that life has thrown at them. And so we want to adopt orphans because it's a merciful, pitiful thing to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible does talk about caring for orphans. It's part of the essence of true religion, James 1. But when we're talking about adoption, we're talking about the grace of God which has taken hold of a culpable, responsible individual who has been in the passions of the flesh. But once we're placed in the household of the living lively, what happens? Well, we praise God for His grace. We come to God and we say, yes, it's true. No matter the fact that I was born and brought up in West Michigan in the church in West Michigan, I know in myself, by nature, I was a son of disobedience. By nature, I was a child of wrath. Perhaps it didn't manifest itself as it does in the lives of others, but I know. I was a son of disobedience. I was following after the prince of the power of the air. And if I could have got involved in some of the sins that other people's got, got involved with, I would have done so. But now we are adopted, not because we were holy and blameless, but in order that we might be holy and blameless, our hearts, filled with the Holy Spirit, come to God and say, thank you for the redemption in Christ. Thank you for my adoption. The second thing about doxology, verse 12, the adopted live then to further God's praise. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. We don't simply praise God. We live for God's praise. It's in knowing our identity as the sons of God and the purpose of God's will for our lives that we be holy. That we bring our Father praise. We go into the week then conscious of our sonship. Sensitive as to how our faith and our conduct reflect our father, reflect our elder brother, and reflect the family of God. In the world of Paul's day, adoption was a treasured status. We indicate the value placed on our adoption, not simply by speaking of it, composing hymns about it, but by walking in the spirit of sonship. And what helps us to do so? Teaching ourselves that as we go into the week that is to come, I have the same status as Jesus Christ, my older brother. I have access through him to the same father. I belong to the same household. And I am co-heirs with him of the same inheritance. Brothers and sisters, let's live as the sons of God this week. Justification then, wonderful picture. Tells us what we're saved from. Adoption, wonderful picture. Points more towards what we are saved to. And so come back next Lord's Day evening, God willing, and we'll consider more of this wonderful theme. Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's so impossible to do justice to it. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to speak of our adoption. And we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit in applying it to us. We pray for any here still in the household of the living dead that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply Christ's redemption to them this night, that they would receive it freely with empty hands. But Father, we pray for those of us who are already placed in the household of the living lively, that we would live as unto you for your glory, the glory of our elder brother, as a response to the privilege that is ours of being co-heirs with Jesus Christ and members of the household of God. Thank you then for not only saving us from our sins, but saving us to a life of sonship, first on this earth, and then on the new earth to come. And we'll give you the glory unto the ages of eternity to come. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.